Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. The Cabinet Secretary is the UK's most senior civil servant. They advise the Prime Minister, oversee the civil service and manage the machinery at the centre of government, including the running of Cabinet. They are at the heart of decision making during times of crisis and are one of the key people who have to make sure that the government machine is providing the support that ministers need. So what is that like? What are the problems that governments face in crises? What do they do well? And what are the things they wish they'd done better? Thank you for joining this IFG uh, live podcast on cabinet secretaries. I'm Catherine Haddon. We've got three former cabinet secretaries who between them have, I think, nearly 20 years of experience in the role to discuss all of that. Um, We've got Robin Butler, Lord Butler of Brockwell, who became cabinet secretary in 1988. Uh, serving three Prime Ministers in his time in that job. When he took over, Margaret Thatcher had been Prime Minister for nearly 10 years. It was the tail end of the Cold War. He was there for the Berlin Wall and the breakup of the USSR. He saw political crisis that led to Margaret Thatcher's downfall, the Gulf War, the UK's forced withdrawal from the European exchange rate mechanism in 1992, and the ongoing troubles in Northern Ireland. Richard Wilson, Lord Wilson of Dinton, took over from Robin in 1998 and served until 2002. When he started the job, Tony Blair had been in office for only a few months. Wilson was there to advise on Blair's first military interventions in Iraq in 1998 and the UK's response during the Kosovo War. He was cabinet secretary for a series of crises in 2000 and 2001, including major floods, fuel protests, the foot and mouth outbreak, and of course, the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center in the US. And of course, Gus O'Donnell, Lord O'Donnell, who became Cabinet Secretary in March 2005. O'Donnell also served three Prime Ministers, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and the first months of the coalition government under David Cameron. Four months into the job, the UK was hit by the July 7th terrorist attacks in London. In 2007, O'Donnell was in post for a further foot and mouth outbreak, and of course, in 2008, the financial crash and its long aftermath. So, a lot of experience to discuss the role, to discuss crises. And I want to start with a sense of perspective. You've all been affected by lockdown, the same as everyone. You've all been watching from the sidelines. You will all, I assume, have had to think about government preparedness for pandemics or for crises of similar proportions. But how does this one compare to some of the experiences you had in office? Just how extraordinary is it? Robin, can we start with you? Anything in your life that compares to it? Yes, well, I think that the closest parallel in uh, many respects is BSE, where, again, there was a threat to human health, and we were dealing with uh, science which was uncertain, and indeed the advice of the scientists was changing from time to time. I had two uh, incidents, episodes of that, One was in 1988, uh, when uh, there was a um, threat from uh, what had been fed to beef, and beef offal had to be uh, banned from um, animal feed, and indeed a a lot of animals were slaughtered. It then came up again in 1996, when uh, the scientists thought that... um, BSE, which they thought couldn't be transmitted to humans, uh, they changed their advice about that and thought that it wasn't impossible uh, and uh, that it would produce a horrible condition called Jacob Kreutzfeldt's disease. Um, And there, um, the government rather made a mess of it because um, we started the scare without having a solution. And um, there, there was some quite uh, uncomfortable times. So, I mean, I take that as the nearest parallel of something which threatened human health and where the science was uncertain and we didn't know how the science was uh, uh, going to develop. But, of course, the difference is that neither of those diseases had anything like the infectious rate that... Um, Uh, the um, COVID-19 has had. And um, so the scale of it uh, was completely different. And Richard, I mean, you dealt with foot and mouth, which uh, again was all about the role of science and modelling and so forth. But 
obviously a very different experience when you're talking about animal health compared to something like this affecting humans. I, I don't think I've dealt with anything remotely like the situation we're in today. You have an inexperienced government, um, most of whom have not been in office for more than a few months, and the Prime Minister has not been in for more than a few months, dealing with three different crises simultaneously, um, which are the, um, the, the pandemic, the economic consequences of the pandemic, and the Brexit possibility of a no deal. And to have to cope with those on, is a scale of crisis which I certainly don't think I've experienced. I've dealt with a lot of, as it were, one-off events, and some of them quite serious. But I think this is different and wholly exceptional. And Gus, I mean, you were there for the financial crash, obviously. You know, again, we're talking about the scale of the economic cost of this alongside, as Richard says, uh, the health costs uh, and the costs in lives. Um, but again, do you see parallels or is it of a different order? Uh, it's a different order because, as Richard pointed out, what starts off as a health crisis, and we kind of know, I've been talked about dealing with health crises, and that's one thing. Mm. Uh, and the health crisis I had to deal with relatively small com compared to this one. Uh, but then you've got an economic crisis brought about by the way government responds to the health crisis because mm. the government took explicit decisions to close down the economy um, and therefore you know you have all the consequences of that which will be very large unemployment and all of that which we we have yet to see unfold but almost certainly will so managing those two things together you know with, with something like the global financial crisis it was a lot easier in one sense in that um, it was very complicated, but it was mostly economic and financial. And it was in a space that actually, particularly coming from the Treasury, you feel more comfortable about. When you're trying to bring these experts from different disciplines together, mm. that's really hard. Um, the scientists and the social scientists tend to find that, you know, working across the disciplines, as, as anyone will know, work, work in academia, is always much more difficult. Absolutely. And that, I think, is, is the essence of why it's proved very difficult, because I think people start off with presumptions that the science gives you answers. And actually, we, we know now that we didn't know very much about this virus, mm. didn't do particularly good at the start of modelling. So, you know, all sorts of things were learned as we went along. Mm. All right, if I could go to, you know, the role of the Cabinet Secretary in particular, I mean, this crisis, it's not one that came completely out of the blue. It's not like an incident occurred and then you get a phone call in the middle of the night. But it was one we saw it creeping around the world, sort of spreading, you know, exponentially. At what point do you as Cabinet Secretary, you know, it's happening in the background, but at what point do you start paying attention and start thinking about what your role is, what you've got to do differently? Well, I think really um, when the first signs are that it is, Serious is my would be my um, suggestion, my uh, answer to that. Um, and I'm trying to think of parallels. Uh, we've 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 dealt with um, three situations which have got uh, quite a lot in common in that they threatened human health and uh, they and science was involved. Um, but also, of course, I had a, a Gulf War. Now that broke at the moment that. Um, Saddam Hussein marched into Kuwait, and so it uh, started with a bang, as it were, in more ways than one. Um, uh, now, when I think back to the ways in which the other ones started, um, the, in both the two health ones that we've uh, mentioned, they started with a, a scientific opinion, and the scientific opinion, as it were, broke on us. In the case of the second one, uh, the 1996 one, <clears throat> um, we weren't prepared for it, and we made a uh, serious mistake at the beginning by um, the Minister of Agriculture and the Health Secretary, with the best of intentions, circulating a minute saying that there's, there was a disturbing danger. And, of course, um, that minute uh, leaked. And... 
it uh, caused great repercussions, including um, the EU banning our exports of beef and, and our exports to them, but also our exports worldwide with a really um, catastrophic effect on the agricultural industry. So um, I think, you know, one always had dealt with these things better if um, there was some warning and it didn't come completely uh, out, of, out of the blue. Uh, with all of them, you know, there was an, um, there was immediate degree of panic uh, it was mm. true, of, true of the Falklands, it was true of the first Gulf War, and it was true of these uh, potential pandemics. They're all different, these crises. Um, all crises have got their own ecosystems, um, which are peculiar to themselves, and they come in different ways. I mean, 9-11 came, you know, I was on my way back from lunch, and I got a phone call saying, uh, that a plane had second plane had gone into a World Trade Center. Should they evacuate number ten? And I said, "Where would you go to?" And they said, "We don't know." And I said, "On that basis, it's probably best not to evacuate." I had images of the special advisors with their laptops on the pavement. And so, but on the other hand, the foot and mouth epidemic. Um, we had a mention by the Minister for Agriculture in a cabinet at the end of February that there had been um, a minor outbreak among pigs in Essex that originated actually in Yorkshire. Um, and they had it under control. And we, a couple of weeks, we just assumed it was under control. We had other things we were dealing with, like the um, Hinduja affair uh, and um, the um, preparations for reorganizing government at the next election. And we were just assuming MAF had it under control until it suddenly became clear that it was, a, it was escalating uh, exponentially. And Mr. Blair um, and I, I went to see him, and I said, this is going badly wrong. And math didn't want to, us to be involved. Uh, and I had to advise the Prime Minister that I thought this was getting too big. And it was actually outstripping their capability in math to deal with it. They didn't have enough vets. Uh, and Mr. Blair said, I want you to take control. And I had to chair a COBRA and get the scientists together and the departments. And we ran it from the cabinet office. But that was a different background. So it, it does, it's never the same. Can we just talk about that for a minute, that chairing of COBRA then? Because obviously there's a lot of discussion about should the prime minister have chaired it earlier? Um, the, the health secretary, Matt Hancock, had chaired quite a few COBRAs before the prime minister took over. I mean, firstly, does it matter who's chairing COBRA or does it just matter that COBRA is happening and what is it that that body brings what is it that it's performing in this kind of um sort of crisis i i would say there, there is one kind of common aspect to all these crises which is at the start there's an enormous amount of uncertainty yeah and mm. the data you've got is quite unreliable and your number one task is to find out as much basic information as possible as quickly as possible and that means getting the key people around the table and getting them because they've got the weight to ensure wherever they are in terms of an agency, a department, whatever, that they'll put in place the systems to ensure you get really good data, really good evidence, and it's timely and it's accurate. And I think there are lessons there and all of those things. So that, that for me is the first part. Now, it may, may take a cobra, it may take the prime minister. Uh, I remember, I think, Gordon Brown in 2007 actually phoning into a cobra on another foot and mouth outbreak. Um, but if you think about the global financial crisis, you know, at the start, it looks like something happening in the subprime market in the US, particularly housing in the South, and you're kind of, is that going to affect us? And very rapidly, if you've got the right people around the table, they explain to you how this thing can escalate. And then you start... From a, from a contingency basis, actually saying we need to be over-prepared for this because mm. this could have very damaging consequences. So the best thing I'd say is, you know, get COBRA going, get the departmental structures going, get as many people as possible that are important to this round the table and get going and then delegate all, to all of those groups and make sure that they bring problems back up to you so you can solve them from the centre. It is well, true. I, I, I agree with that. Um, I think there's just one point that's worth making. Uh, the media uh, and we 
talk about cobra meetings. But of course, cobra is not a type of meeting. Cobra is a place. It's the cabinet yeah. office briefing room yeah. that he's used, I mean, mm -hmm. originally designed for um, uh, an approach to war. And I doubt very much whether what have been described as Cobra meetings in the present crisis have actually been happening in the Cabinet Office briefing room. They might have. But I think it's much more likely they've been taking place in the Cabinet room. And I agree with Gus, I mean, I, well, and with Richard. I mean, I think that the first task is to get, and this is the task of the Cabinet Secretary, to get together the people who can contribute the facts uh, which can be put to ministers uh, for decisions to help starting with the start dealing with the crisis. And so I think in all mm. these things where, where I was concerned, um, as Richard and Gus were saying, first thing you do was get a meeting of the people who really knew about it and could give you the information. Now, these were sometimes people that, you know, we weren't already familiar with, you know, John Patterson, who was the chief scientist um, on SEAC, the Spongiform Encephalitis Advisory Committee. I never met him before at all. I got to know him extremely well. Um, and I guess the same things happened with the chief scientist and the chief medical officer uh, here. I think it does have to start with officials and it does have mm. to start with the cabinet secretary uh, yeah. getting the machinery together, uh, uh, which can produce the facts on the basis of which decisions can be made. There are a number of ground rules which are pretty reliable. One is, uh, that you, that is that when you have something happen suddenly, everyone goes into shock. There is a kind of element of everyone running around in circles. And if you say, we're going to have a meeting of, in the COBRA, in COBRA mm. at 3.30, 4.30, um, it gives everyone a sense of order. Uh, uh, they know what's happening. You also need to have absolutely firm control over communications if you possibly can because the first facts you get will be wrong as Gus said and also if everyone talks to the press they all tell different stories and the story becomes the chaos in the centre of government so you need to have one person clearly identified and getting everyone into one room and being clear about that is a way of doing it um, mm -hmm. and you also need to have basic equipment like an outside line during the storm in 1987 all the government telecommunications went down. Nobody remembers this. And the Home Office, who were a responsible lead department, were reduced to dealing with the crises from the phone box in St James's tube station using 10p coins. And I had to send runners around Whitehall. I was working for Robert Armstrong at the time. So you do have to have, I've learned, always have an outside line. Um, and so you do need to have certain ground rules and then get, get everyone together into a room. And, and that gives everyone a sense of calming down and getting into good order and using their heads, which is what you need well, to do. Robin will remember, picking yep. up on Richard there, the, the phone box, that um, when Black Wednesday happened, we were, we were redecorating number 10. So we were all in Admiralty House, and um, we didn't have a Reuters screen, which you know was giving us all the market information. And, and um, since we were investing rather a large amount of our reserves every single minute uh, in the markets, knowing what was happening up, up to date was very important. But that was an example where you needed all the key ministers in that room, as it were, to put their hands in the blood to make sure that they were all lined up to what were some very difficult decisions in this mm. case, the decision to leave the exchange rate maximum. Can yes. I bring in a question from uh, one of our, sorry, Robin, I'll, I'll uh, just bring in this question from one of our, uh, hopefully, listeners, um, Luke, who is a teacher at uh, Aquinas Sixth Form College, and he says, um, to what extent and in what ways the policy-making process is changed during periods of crisis? I would assume that decisions are taken by an even smaller core group, perhaps even just the PM. I mean, is, it, does it change massively once you've got all that information who is actually involved because you can't have all of cabinet we do see these sort of war committee or war cabinet types so not you know groups being formed robin yes um i think in all these crises um the you get a small group of uh, ministers um it's described if it's military action it's described as the war cabinet uh, and in the case of other crises it'll be a small group of ministers who um can all 
contribute something. Obviously, it was a financial crisis, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, in uh, I remember Black Wednesday, I think we had the Foreign Secretary there. Um, and um, and, and they, they uh, have really to, uh, to deal with it. Um, and how does it affect everything else? Well, everything else has got to be carried on. But of course, this becomes dominant and you get the press not really dealing with anything else at all. Um, you know, mm. if you read the media at the moment, you'd think there was nothing happening except the coronavirus. Um, six months ago, there was nothing happening except Brexit. So as Richard was saying, I think it is very important that you have a spokesman and a line that ministers agree that is a single li line that is being taken on behalf of the government. Mm. I, would, I would add to that that... Um the communication aspect of any crisis is absolutely vital. And I think I yeah. the cabinet secretary of the day, a chap called Robin Butler, who invited me to join the uh, war cabinet. This is for the first uh, Iraq war, which was uh, because of the communications aspect. This was the first time in a modern war you had actually cameras seeing where your bombs were landing. Mm. I thought that was that was brilliant experience. I wasn't as happy when the IRA landed their mortar bomb outside one of our meetings and we almost got evaporated but um it was great experience it? indeed but it was an important aspect the getting the communications right you know you've seen the problems that uh, we've had about trying to get a big behavior change in terms of communication being able to ease it at the right time mm. that nowadays it, it's absolutely essential yes i mean it's worth it's, it's worth perhaps just talking for a moment about the mechanism that was set up for the first Gulf War. Um, Saddam mm -hmm. Hussein marched into Kuwait on the 2nd of August, very inconveniently. Um, I was just about to go off for my holidays. Uh, Margaret Thatcher was at Aspen. And we set up a, um, a machinery which worked basically like this. Because the time frame in Iraq was ahead of ours, the JIC met at six o'clock in the morning uh, and produced an assessment which took in all the military staff and uh, political staff, whatever. Uh, permanent secretaries met at 8.30, and the uh, ministers then met at either 9.30 or 10, so that mm -hmm. uh, there was a communications strategy for the lobby, which took place at 11, which Gus will, uh, will remember. And we, we set up that pattern which went on for a long time, and poor GIC people must have lost an awful lot of, uh, of sleep, uh, but it did, uh, it did work. I vividly remember that having set this up, I went off on my holiday. By the time I got back, Margaret Thatcher was there. The first time I walked into the cabinet room said, we've been working while you've been sunning yourself on a beach. <laughs> I, could, I, I could have strangled her. Yeah, <laughs> but but that is very relevant, Robin. That military timetable when you're at war um, is is actually very useful. I had a number of military uh, wars uh, when I was cabinet secretary, and like Kosovo and um, Sierra Leone and Afghanistan mm. and the first Iraq bombing and so on. And we had a a routine, a drill, which actually is slightly different from yours. Began at six and began with the intelligence people and the, and the military people meeting, and then we had ministers at eight, and then we all broke up, and different people went to do whatever they had to do, and the communications people met, and so on. And that was, and then we met again at the end of the day, and that was a good model when we came to foot and mouth. We used exactly the same model for dealing with foot mm. and mouth. And if you've got a crisis which is ongoing like that, that, that works, and that's the group of people who you, you establish, who need to be running it. But 9-11, it came out of nowhere, and we were very alarmed as to whether there was going to be bombing, you know, in London, Buckingham mm. Palace or the, or the Big Ben or something. Uh, and I was about the only person around. The Prime Minister was down in Brighton about to address the TUC at Blackpool, or Brighton, I mean, and everyone was out, or Bournemouth, everyone was out of London. And we... Um, so I said to number 10, we will have, we'll open up the Cobra meeting room and we'll have a meeting at 4.30, just out of nowhere. And we rang around, did a huge ring around departments. We got hold of the Prime Minister and Transport wanted to close down City of London Airport. 
and we just decided to do it. We didn't have time to get permission. We just closed it down and sorted it out afterwards. Uh, And a number of other airports we closed down. And we then had the meeting at 4.30, and as I, I, which I chaired until the Prime Minister came. And as I chaired it, more and more cabinet ministers came in. It's the only time I've chaired a meeting, which Gordon Brown attended. Um, and they all, uh, we had a, a, a lot of people. I looked around the table in, as the room filled up, and we had most of the cabinet there. That wasn't, that was just, we just told them what was happening, and they all turned up, because we didn't, mm. we didn't know, it was too uncertain how dangerous it was for London, what we were going to do, what the implications were. So we got as many people in as, as we could lay hands on. And it, by the time it finished and the Prime Minister arrived, we had everything, as it were, in good order for him to pick up and take ahead. And he then moved from the things that bothered me, which is like protecting London, to the big stage, as where is, where is um, the president and what's he going to do and what's happening, what are the Americans up to? So it was... Mm. It was it was, it was a spontaneous coming together of the Whitehall machine. How much does preparation help? I mean, you've all been involved in various aspects of emergency planning. You all would have known what's, you know, was there for planning for war, planning for other kinds of emergencies and so forth. Presumably you all did simulation exercises with officials, but did you ever get ministers to take part? Do you know, I never, I never took part in a, simu- a simulation exercise. I was struck by hearing Gus give an interview quite early on in this thing where he asked, you know, was there a contingency plan? And he said, I don't think there was a, uh, a sufficient contingency plan uh, for this. Um, so trial um, exercises did go on, particularly military ones, hmm. but, but I, I certainly never took part in something for a civil emergency of this sort. We had something called the Civil Contingencies Unit, and um, they, they, they did it, um, I, you know, and as I say, as, as Cabinet Secretary, I wasn't involved, and probably I should have been, but um, you know, I, wasn't in, I didn't oversee and insist on proper contingency planning for everything. I think it, it would now be part of the task. Mm. Can I just make a point, which is that sometimes you plan for a contingency and it doesn't happen. Mm. The millennium bug, we put oh, in yes. enormous effort. In, I, I looked up this morning on Wikipedia, which said that 300 billion US dollars are spent preparing for YK2, whatever it was called. And we, mm. we know I had a team of people gearing up with private sector, all the possible things could, could have gone wrong when the year 2000 occurred because you just had two noughts uh, in computers and it didn't say whether it was 1900 or 2000. And we briefed the cabinet and on the, uh, on the um, New Year's Eve, uh, the millennium night, we had an enormous team of people ready to deal with every crisis you could think of, aeroplanes dropping out of the sky, all the horrors we thought could happen. Nothing happened. I just put in a plea for so you can sometimes, and we had rehearsed that, I have to tell you, extremely thoroughly. Um, And Mm. it just shows when you concentrate on something, it doesn't happen. (laughs) Yes. What I would add to that is, you're really, really good at crises the second time around. So, Foot and mouth was an example. Yeah. We did it a lot better. Um, various of the relatively smaller health ones. If you look at how countries have responded, you know, you look at Asia's response to the virus. Well, because they had SARS, countries like um, South Korea have done very well this time. Um, I suspect that we would do a global financial crisis a lot better next time. Um, so. You can try and do this contingency work, and there was, you know, we did have risk registers. Pandemic was right mm. up there. There were tabletop exercises with ministers. The problem is, it's not the same as the real thing. And you can put in place, as was done then, you know, stores of PPE and all sorts of things. But over time, it goes mm. away. And there's this thing called complacency. You know, the we had the the nice decade, and you know, non-inflationary, consistent expansion for ten years. So suddenly the global financial crisis throws that all up. So, you know, I do worry, and it was, I think, all of us worry. Nearly all of these crises have some sort of financial thing. If you haven't lived through a recession, you need need a treasury that knows about recessions, right? So 
And if you have these long periods when nothing happens, then people forget, people move on. Mm. So I'd say it's really, really important to do the contingency work. But actually, remember, you're probably going to fight a completely different crisis the next time. And I think one of the lessons from this time is actually learn that contingency work, as, as picking up what Robin said, is really, really valuable. And you've got to somehow ring fence it. Because if you don't, if you don't keep that money spare, you know, the, the health service will always run hot and they'll use it up on mm. something else because it will be immediate and it will be visible. And you'll never get them to put aside spare capacity. And of course, if you've got spare capacity and it's not used, everyone's going to yeah. criticize you. So it is really hard to do the right contingency planning and keep it going year mm. after year when absolutely nothing yes, is yeah. happening. When it looks like it said with the millennium bug. Yes, wouldn't you agree? I mean, there was a gap really in uh, financial crises between 1992 and 2008. And the, tr the Treasury had it yep. very easy during that time. There was also a very high degree of turnover in the Treasury. So by 2008, there weren't many people who could remember uh, 1992. And so I think a, a task these days, and I mean, there is always now higher turnover, I think, uh, a task these days is to make sure that the generations that are coming, going through are learning the lessons from the previous episodes. And I know that um, both uh, Jeremy Hayward uh, and uh, they they've, have put in educational events like that, which I think we've all taken part in, actually. Mm -hmm. mm. I, yeah. Gus is absolutely... You, you imagine... That Gus is absolutely right. I was just going to say the current crop of civil servants have had Brexit followed mm. by COVID. I mean, wow, they must be the best prepared <laughs> for crisis of any generation. I was just going to say, we, we learned um, about how things get out of date, planning, contingency plan gets out of date with the fuel protests. We had very elaborate contingency plans together with the oil industry, which dated from the 1970s. And when the fuel protests mm. took place, we brushed them off and we were, sell we were ready to deal with any interruption in oil supplies, petrol supplies, whatever. And the, the plan said it would take a week for the protests to have any impact. And on the Monday, the first day, I was in my chairing a meeting at midday, and I got a message saying that the garages in South London would start being dry at five o'clock that evening. And that by, within two days, the whole economy was very nearly at a complete standstill. And what we discovered was that we had not taken account of the changes in the world outside, one being the importance of just-in-time stocking, which meant that rather than 20 30% of the economy being what regarded as essential to keep going, most of the economy was essential and had to be kept going. Uh, and the whole of the oil industry was, was, was um, broken up into outsourcing and run from Milan or wherever. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of the refineries, and there was no one who could deal with to keep these supplies running. So you do need to keep your plans up to date. Mm. Can I just goes. move us on to the sort of where we're at now? Because obviously this has been going on now for three months, um, you know, to the most acute phase of this crisis. Mm. One of the issues at the moment uh, is following through on a lot of the government's plans, its pledges and so forth. So it's a lot more about what are departments doing to deliver? The cabinet, sec uh, the cabinet secretary of all, uh, you can't ask ministers to get things done. Obviously, it's the role of the cabinet office to coordinate the plans and so forth, um, and the action points coming out of cabinet. What levers do you have to get, say, departments to get permanent secretaries to follow through on implementation, making sure things are getting done? Well, I would, I would answer that, that that's where the collegiality of the system really becomes very important. Uh, you need to have, and during, I think we did have, very good personal relations between the permanent secretaries. Also during the Gulf War, very good personal relations with the P, uh, chiefs of staff. And, um, you know, we, we then had to carry out ministers' decisions I, but ministers did take the advice very seriously. 
And I can't remember uh, an event, but perhaps uh, Richard or Gus can, where we felt we were having to try and carry out something which we had advised against or which we thought was impossible. Um, you know, there were things that had to be done, but in general also the unanimity and the collegiality with ministers uh, was at a very high level. I agree. I can't think of any occasion when we... I agree first about the collegiality. I think if you're cabinet secretary and you say to your colleagues, we've got a real crisis, I need you help, I need you to do this or that, in my experience, mm. they do it. I mean, you, you, they, or they'll come around and they'll talk. You, you, there's a kind of um, instant bonding which people uh, uh, show when they know that there's a real problem and the cabinet secretary is asking for their cooperation, and they do cooperate. And secondly, um, I don't think I think ministers become part of that. They need support. They need help. They need advice. I cannot recall an occasion where officials and ministers in a crisis were seriously at odds. I've, I've just looked through a list I've done of them, and I can't think any of them was that uh, was there a problem at all. Uh, we've got a question from Jill Rutter, um, one of my former, one, one of my colleagues now, one of your former colleagues. Um, she's a senior fellow at the IFG and yeah, former civil servant. For those who don't know, the name um, is she familiar. says lots of talk. The name is familiar. Lots of talk about whether or not the PM has a grip in reorganising the centre. What would you have done to help the Prime Minister get a grip in terms of focusing or changing things at the centre? I mean, did any of you have to sort of do any big shifts in how things were operating in and around the Prime Minister or in and around the Cabinet Office whilst you were in the midst of dealing with something? Well, I think this is an, a unique situation, as we said right at the beginning. I mean, the range mm. of things that uh, the Prime Minister and those around him have got to deal with is quite unprecedented and, and hugely formidable. No, I mean, I can't remember. I, I, we used, the in my case, we used the machinery of government that there was, and it worked. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, as I say, this is where the collegiality uh, came in. Um, I certainly don't think you, it's a moment during a crisis where you want to start reorganising the machinery of government too much. Um, it's uh, Dennis Healy's famous mo, the time to take a man's appendix out is not when he's carrying a piano upstairs. Um, and, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, what I found was you had to make the sort of arrangements we've been talking about but the system responded to, to it, and it could respond to it. And um, I don't remember sort of there being weaknesses. We were lucky in that we were surrounded by extremely capable people on the communication side, on the um, on, on the uh, scientific side, on the delivery side, and uh, it worked. Uh, all I would add to that is sometimes you need to supplement that. Um, in my case, during the global financial crisis, this was somewhat unusual and beyond, as, as Robin hinted at, beyond the experience of people who were around at that point. So uh, we just wanted to reassure ourselves that we weren't making any mistakes and missing anything. So remember Gordon Brown saying to me, get me the best economists mm. in the world around the table who know about financial crises. And we did indeed fly them all in, get their advice and feed that into the machine. But as Robin says, you don't change the machine particularly uh, because that should be geared up to do this. And it should, uh, you know, if, if you're suddenly recreating everything in the middle of a crisis, I think it would cause its own chaos. And, uh, just, just a follow-up question. You mentioned obviously bringing in economists, um, bringing in advisors. Uh, Jill had a follow-up question, which was about um, the criticisms that were put at the Liaison Committee for a lack of diversity, particularly women, in decision-making. I mean, presumably diversity on all fronts is really important when it comes to decision-making, so it's not just a homogenous view. I mean, what would you be saying? Absolutely. I mean, we had people like Nouriel Roubini, you know, the, the whole Black Swans man. There were, there, were, there were people who had quite extreme views because you're in something which is unprecedented. Therefore, you need someone that's not bound by just narrow thinking. So I think diversity is, is massively important. Um, and I know Jill is particularly keen on the issue about how many women were around the table. But, I mean, if you look at Germany, Taiwan, New Zealand, Ireland, sorry, Iceland, Finland, Norway, Denmark, 
I mean, what do they all have in common? Number one, they've done incredibly well relative to us, certainly. Number two, they're all led by women. Um, <laughs> that may just be, you know, you compare and contrast with the US, Spain, Italy, etc. cetera. Um, but I think that point about having different voices, not having groupthink. So when people said there was a discussion about herd mm. immunity around the table at some point, I've no idea if that's true or not. Um, but it struck me as perfectly healthy that someone should be putting forward different views and there should be a proper discussion with the experts there to be able to say whether it was sensible or not. I would be very much more nervous if you came up with a group who said there's only one answer to this and, and that's it. And they didn't consider any alternatives. I think particularly in the early stages with a great deal of uncertainty, you need to keep open minds about uh, many of the key factors because you just mm. don't know. All right, um, just then for the last sort of section of this, I want us to think about lessons you take away from a crisis. Um, we've got a question from Angela Hodkinson from the Social Change Initiative who asked um, basically about that. She talked about the range of different ways of working that have been probably learned during this crisis about, you know, there's innovation, use of data, pace in decision making. Many will be keen that we, we sustain and keep developing these ways of working. How do you go back to better, she says, rather than go back to normal? How do you learn lessons as you're going along during a crisis? Well, let me start with that. I, mean, I think you always stick to better. Um, mm. You know, people don't go back. Uh, you learn lessons from things and you do, um, and you say, gosh, that's a good way of doing it. And uh, it, it, people pick it up. And uh, so it, it almost adapts. And then, you know, there are training courses um, which pick up the lessons. And But, you know, I think the way things happen now are hugely different and hugely better, I'm sure, from the time we were doing mm. it. Uh, just, just one mm. point I'd like to add add um, to what we were saying before. I'm sure this is true of Gus and Richard. I also had a very wide range of contacts outside the government uh, in industry and uh, in the city. Yeah. And it was, um, and, and, you know, I didn't hesitate to pick up a phone to them and they didn't pick, hesitate to pick up a phone to me, Absolutely. Uh, uh, which, which also were very useful. So I think having that range of antennae uh, as spreading as widely as possible, including to the media, actually, including to the BBC, uh, mm. very close to John Burt. Um, it's, uh, that, that is a, that's a great help. But sorry, let me give the, 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 let the others answer your last question. I think the, I agree with what, what Robin's just said now. Uh, in the foot and mouth uh, crisis, uh, I, I was, uh, there was a moment when we were at a loss what to do. I rang up my opposite number in New Zealand because they had the most recent experience on foot and mouth. Uh, and I asked her what she her advice was. And she gave me really very sound, helpful advice and pointed me in the right direction about the things which I should be raising when I chair the meeting in a short while after that. Mm. There are, there, I think you know, there are all sorts of situations where you bring in, I think crises open up the government machine to people who would not normally be heard in all sorts of ways which are interesting and worth trying to keep alive. But this, this particular set of crises are, I think, going to be much more of a historical landmark mm. than the ones that we've dealt with, important though they were in the financial crisis certainly was. Um, I think that a lot of things which are under the surface are suddenly coming to the surface, making themselves selves felt. And the world will be different. I think social change, the impact of social media, ways of working, values, the things that people have learned from the crises, uh, the, it, the policy issues about equality, levelling up and so on, are going to suddenly become more real. The impact of the pandemic on people from BAME groups, all these things mm. are not going to go away. And that's how the real change is going to come. And I think once we've, we've come to face to face with the issues, we can't ignore them anymore. Hmm. And Gus, I mean, this brings us on to the question about inquiries. Were you ever thinking about there's going to be an inquiry into this eventually? They're going to look back at what we're, we're doing, or were you just getting on with it? You just get on with it, but I think you, you are also aware that um, you're accountable and, and that's fine. You know, I mean, you're trying to do the very best you can. So those two things don't actually conflict. 
I think what you're always thinking about is was there something that would have made a big difference to this that would have prevented this crisis? And you know, global financial crisis, I think the important thing was afterwards we learned the lesson. Actually, you know, banks were massively undercapitalized. We need to get them much better capitalized. And we're seeing the benefits of that now. I mean, if that happened, the banking system, I think if we hadn't done that, it would have fallen over now and it would have affected this crisis. So I think it's really important to think about learning. The thing about inquiries as well is, you know, you don't want it to be a blame game. You don't want people saying, well, you should have made this decision. With You could only know that with hindsight. I think it's really important that we say, well, with the information available at the time, did they make the right decisions? Then thinking about those things which you can actually change and also remembering that there are some broader issues. You know, don't just fight the last war. Think about other lessons about the way we manage crises, the way we handle contingencies, you know, we basically probably need to ensure more, as it were, put put more resources into things which are there for events that might happen and that probably mm. won't. But if, if they did happen, then, you know, they'll, they'll pay off. I mean, well, that point about blame game, you've all presented a relatively positive view of how well things work. I mean, difficulties, huge difficulties and so forth. But uh, we know from the history books that, you know, during foot and mouth, Blair wasn't that happy with the performance of Nick Brown um, and what was going on with the department. We know similarly um, with BSC, there were sort of clashes between number 10 and, um, and math. Uh, do you get into a blame game between departments and the prime minister? You know, does politics research um, during these times? It's, you know, high tensions. Yes, I, I mean, I think we, again, the world has changed quite a bit. Um, and there is now um, always a hunt for scapegoats. It's very mm. often a hunt for scapegoats while things are going on. I think we were lucky, I said, and I, I felt lucky, that there wasn't the same sort of um, blame culture when I was uh, involved in it. But I'm sure that Gus and Richard will agree with me. I can't remember ever thinking during one of these crises, how will this look before the inquiry? Oh, I'll tell you once. There was one. There was one. There was one. And that was when the Brighton bomb went off and Ma exactly. Margaret Thatcher went into the bedroom in the darkness and you could hear the uh, building collapsing. I did stand outside and think to myself, how will it uh, appear before the inquiry that I let the Prime Minister go into this uh, collapsing building? But um, I didn't feel I could push her aside. But I can't remember ever it, it, in the normal way thinking, how will this look before mm. an inquiry? Mm. Richard? I, I remember, Robin, I mean, it's certainly true that tensions are high and that people can get cross with each other. And it's also true during the foot and mouth episode. At the beginning, there was real tension between the centre and, uh, and the Ministry of Agriculture because they were keeping too much to themselves. They weren't telling us what was going wrong. And I think we were slow to realise how badly it was getting out of hand. And we, we uh, as, as it happened, I remember thinking we must be better equipped to spot things going on in, in government across mm. Whitehall. And we, we did set up that September, the beginning of September, um, a new civil contingencies unit with a, with a job partly of horizon watching, as well as keeping in touch with crises and alerting us to things before they got out of hand. Um, so, and you, most, most of your top jobs, permanent secretary or cabinet secretary, you are always conscious that what you do will be, um, you'll be held accountable for, that whether it's by the public accounts committee or a select committee or whatever mechanism, you, or the committee of inquiry. You always know that that's there. It's part of the life and you go on and you do your best and, and try to make sure what you do is, is sort of the best in the public interest. All right. I think... It's also worth adding that, you know, part of your cabinet secretary's job is to try and keep the prime minister and the key key uh, ministers together. But remember, in this case, we have a prime minister who gets really sick, who ends up in intensive care. He's not yeah. there, you know, and, and there's, there's a long recovery period from these things. So they've had it really tough. And, uh, you know, when I look back on my time, yes. it's a um, piece of cake compared to this yes, lot. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. I well, agree with that. Why don't we finish then? I mean, bringing it back to the role of the Cabinet Secretary, it's a massive job 
even in normal times, even in peace times, you've got something like this going on. Um, I'm sure, you know, perhaps you've, you've been offering it anyway. I won't ask for that. But what sort of advice would you give to a cabinet secretary, perhaps going through something like this, about how he prioritizes what he's doing? What are the things he needs to be worrying about the most? Well, if you can't do it, you shouldn't be cabinet secretary, is my answer to that. <laughs> get enough sleep would be my advice. Whatever you do, you just get whatever, how many hours you need. Make sure you get it because you won't be any use to anybody if you're a wreck yourself. Yeah. And, and get good people under you who you trust and forge as quickly as you can a good team so that you, you, you can trust each other and get the best people around, whoever they are to work for you through the crisis. Ruthlessly, get them in. Gus? And I would add, work out those things which only you as Cabinet yeah. Secretary can do and try as far as possible to delegate people, as Richard says, that you trust to get on with the rest of it. Do not try and keep it all to yourself. Uh, Kath, um, we may have given a bit of a uh, complacent view, and I'm reminded of that bit of Henry V, Old men forget, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Uh, there, may be a, there may have been a bit of that in this uh, session. <laughs> the thing I remember is always the chaos, the things that went wrong. You know, 9-11, our switchboard again went down. We had a new one. So I was doing, again, work on the outside line. And I wanted to open the tunnel between Cabinet Office and the Ministry of Defence um, because I wasn't sure if we needed to evacuate to the MOD. And the man who was in charge of the tunnel was on holiday and nobody knew where he'd put the key. I have, I, those are the sorts of things that I remember, is that you have an awful lot of things which go wrong in the event and you have to, you have to cope with them. Um, I think that's the main point I would make. I, I don't think it was perfect. I think you are in shock. There is chaos, always chaos around crises. They never take the form you expect. Uh, and you need to have a drill that you can hold on to. And this is what's going on at the moment is bigger than the sort of drill we've been talking about. Mm. This is out of our league in a way mm. of anything we've dealt with. Thank you very much. We'll end it there. I'm sure Sir Mark Sedwell is very busy, but if he does have a spare hour, I'm sure he'll want to listen to all of this. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.